The human male never seems to progress past adolescence. To the Batmobile. Goodly moodly. Let's go. Please, sir. Let's go. I need a horse. Take for taker. You wouldn't like me when I'm wrong, 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 you Yeah. Hello, darling. Welcome to the comic trope. We're in a small room, or is it a speeding bus? We go around a turn, two wheels up on each other. I go to the front of the bus. Who's driving but Sequoia? I'm like, Sequoia, why are you driving so fast? And then in the back of the bus, I can hear Dave yelling, I'm smiling so big. Why are we going over 88 miles per hour? Dave yells from the back of the bus, because if we slow down, this bus will explode. My hair is on end. I don't know what to do. And then we get saved. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the ending's pretty good. You should watch the movie. <laughs> the Comic Trope is a comic book podcast where I, me, Blake, invite friends over to talk about comic books and the culture that surrounds it. Today, I have Smiling Dave and a special guest here now monthly, Sequoia Winston, a.k.a. Encyclopedia Black. We're going to talk about Planetary by Warren Ellis and what's his name? John Cassidy? That's right. Yeah. Woo! And the, um, the L- Laura Dupuy. That's right. She did ink on every one of them, right? Yeah. What's her actual name? Well, she was Laura Martin when she started. She got married. Oh, okay. That's Laura right. Dupuy. Mm-hmm. If that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, D- she was Dupuy. the colorist. That's really Dupuy. good. <laughs> so for people who are just tuning in every month, we have a Sequoia Suggest recently renamed to Sequoia Speaks. And when we talk about a larger comic book series in its entirety and today is planetary you know i like this idea that uh, once per month we have a segment called sequoia speaks because i imagine that he comes to all of these but the only one that he says anything during is this one where we review the book so calling it sequoia speaks is like uh, oh man i can't wait for sequoia to say something this week he's just all <laughs> stoic in the corner just smiling or nodding his head shaking his head on whatever we say but once a month he speaks. His divine voice comes out and speaks about wonderful comics. Mitch Hedberg says that uh, horns are fun, like on cars, but they're annoying sometimes. So he wishes they had like a monthly limit, like the number of times you could honk. <laughs> He's like, you're about to get in a car accident and you slam your hand on the horn and nothing happens. He's like, shit, I wish I hadn't seen Carlos on the sidewalk yesterday. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, before we go, I would like to say, hey, Amos, get better. I know you're probably not listening to this because you're not on this podcast, but Amos is sick, everybody. We think he's... Pregnant? No, is that a, that's mean, right? Is he butt sick or stomach sick? I don't know. I think head had, sick. I think he's head sick, yeah. Okay. Head sick. That's all I got. Let's do some icebreakers. You know who else breaks ice pretty well? Don't do it. Elijah Snow. Oh, so that's good. I thought you were going to go to a different direction. <laughs> no, I'll save that for later in the podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. All right. This is going to have nothing to do with planetary because we're going to only be talking about planetary for like seven hours. So instead, I'm going to ask you a silly question. Hey, guys, what kind of instrument does this superhero play? Willy, 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 I'm going to give you guys a superhero. You're going to give me the instrument that that superhero plays, okay? Okay. All right. Yeah. Auto harp. No, no, no. <laughs> Just know that's where I'm going. You're going. <laughs> okay. Dave. Aquaman. Uh, I believe that Aquaman plays the conch shell. Yep. That's true. Because of that, uh, <laughs> have you seen that, that comic where it's, 
he's like holding this special conch shell and he says, don't touch this Dr. Doom. And then Dr. Doom grabs it. He's like, you can't tell Dr. Doom what to do. And then this, this panel is, is Dr. Wait, wait, Doom. wait, 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 Dr. Doom and Aquaman. Wait, no, it's, it's, it's fucking seafarer, motherfucker, Marvel. Black Manta? Namor? No, Namor. It's Namor. I fucked it all up. Aww. I was going to cut everything out. I just said, but anyways, <laughs> Dr. Doom, he like, uh, <laughs> he blows through it and it says toot. Because uh, he can't do it. Nope. He can't call on the fish like Namor. I think that Namor and Aquaman would both use a conch shell, though. Who would, do, who would win in a fight? Aquaman or Namor? Dude, Namor is way more powerful than fucking Aquaman. You think? Dude. Well, Namor can fly. Yeah. Aquaman can't. But can't he, like, kick off the ground because of gravity or because of the pressure underwater? It's the blah, fucking blah, blah, blah. little wings on his feet that makes, that makes Namor fly. Also, uh, let's not forget, Namor fought the Nazis. Yeah, that's true. That's true. With a pair of human torches. <laughs> Namor recently got his head ripped off by uh, Hyperion. Really? Because mm-hmm. he deserved it. Catwoman. Sequoia. What instrument she play? Oh, um, it's got to be stringed because of cat gut. Well, I, you know, I figure with the claws and stuff, she needs something. I, I kind of imagine her. I imagine her playing a harp. Yep. Yeah. Harp or banjo. Or banjo, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. the claw. Yeah. The blank, blank, blank. Maybe that's my yeah, banjo. she plays the banjo for her hundreds of cats that she <laughs> keeps in her apartment. And every time one dies, she just strings its guts up and <laughs> makes a new set of strings. <laughs> Cat gut. All right, throw one at me. Throw one at you. Our man. Our man? Mm. F- definitely fills up bottles with water. It just kind of blows on them. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> He's Mr. Wizard, yep. apparently. Mr. Wizard. Spider Man. Yeah, that was pretty easy. Uh he clearly plays the Shamasin. <laughs> what? what is that? The Shamasin is the the traditional like um I don't know if it I think it's Japanese. I know that it's is also, it kinda like an airhu? I don't know what the fucking Airhu is three string, no, one string, and it's got like a like it looks like a there's a bowl and it's got a What's real a bong. It looks like a giant. Okay, bong. it's a bong. It's a bong with one string. I, I, you know what? The next time that the police bust me, I'm gonna be like, "That's an air hoop, bro." <laughs> <laughs> You're so culturally insensitive, man. That's an air. That's an air hoop. Um, so a shamisen is a two stringed traditional. I want to say Japanese. I know that it's featured in some Chinese music as well. Um, but it's two strings, and then you beat on it with a claw. Surely you've seen it. Like it's like a. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Like, by, by yeah, the right. by, your hand movements, I know exactly what you're talking. Yeah, you know about. what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's it's famous for um, um, disenfranchised uh, white twenty somethings who are in love with Japanese uh, culture to make YouTube videos where they shittily play pop songs on shamisens. Uh, <laughs> my brother's doing well now that you brought him up. <laughs> what a guy, though, you know? Doc Savage. The Doc's- bronze man. What would he play? Clarinet. Mm, good call. Good uh, because Doc Savage is a man of the jazz age. Yep, and yeah. I, I I like to imagine that uh, mm-hmm. Doc Savage was really into klezmer music. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the clarinet uh, that would be his instrument of choice. I can see that because well as Widow's Peak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about Black Panther? I think you should answer that one. Yeah, <laughs> I asked, so I don't get to answer. That's the way it is. He plays the wah wah guitar. I don't know why, but that's what he plays. Or, or, 
four. He plays the the like the slap bass, like the the Seinfeld intro. Yeah, you know what? I think Black Panther could play whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> I think that that's the rules because I could see him as like a Prince guitar player, like my guitar gently weeps solo by Prince. Yeah, that's the most incredible thing I've probably ever seen in my life. Yeah, that where he just at the end he just throws up the guitar, walks out, and then like his bodyguard grab like someone like grabs the uh i just love that it's like this george harrison like benefit concert and tom petty is playing while my guitar gently weeps and then fucking prince just appears mm-hmm. like just walks out in of a cloud mouth. of smoke he just, he just <laughs> rolls up <laughs> he just is in a purple suit and he fucking destroys while my guitar oh, yeah. gently weeps and then he throws his guitar up and just leaves and they're like when people <laughs> like when, they didn't even know he was scheduled to play or some shit <laughs> when people talk about the most underrated guitar players prince is always want to come to mind because when you think of prince you don't think amazing guitar player you think many things but it guitar player is not one you play that video to anyone especially someone who is like musical other than his showmanship mm-hmm. that shit is ridiculous so i would if you're listening to this podcast and you have not seen it you have my um you have my blessing to turn it off and go to youtube and type in prince prince while my guitar gently weeps 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 What's Charlie Brown play? He's a, I, I mean, I guess he's a comic book. He's, yeah, not a superhero, but uh, maybe he is. Snoopy's a superhero. He flies a plane and shoots the Red Baron down. That's or true. just shot down, as the case is so often. Uh, Charlie Brown, um, he plays Misery. <laughs> he plays the, <laughs> That's, he only plays Misery by uh, Soul, Soul Asylum. Soul Asylum on. <laughs> They say misery. That's all it is, over and over. Love's company. I mean, I'd say he plays piano because his theme is piano. Right? Well, Linus. That's, that's Linus. Linus. Linus, Linus yeah. Charles Schultz. Is it Linus? Isn't it? I thought Schroeder to play the piano. Is on Peanuts? It? On Peanuts, yeah. So what, what, does what does Linus do? He has his blanket. Oh, Linus has the blanket and yeah. Pigpen stinks. Pigpen's easy to remember. Yeah. Like, who the fuck named their kid Pigpen? I think that was just a neighborhood nickname. So what's that. his real name? Carlton. Cl- Clarence or Clarence. something. <laughs> Clarence. But they just make fun of him and he stinks and they just let him stink. And But but I don't know. Like everybody had that one kid either in their class Maybe or in their neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. There's always some kid who reeked of urine. Yep. Yeah. And if you think back. And you're like, that, I didn't have that kid in my class. Then it was you. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> it is the truth. So if you can't think of that person, you needed to wash your ass, and you probably still do. <laughs> I feel like we need a really good like musical segue into this for this segment called Segoya. Segoya. I called you Segoya on the last episode for some oh, reason. And, really? I was, and I was like, what? Those little nectar drinks that you get at Venezuelan restaurants? <laughs> Segoya. Segoya. It's because it's the suggests that makes me want to say Seg. Beber Segoya. <laughs> Sequoia speaks. Sequoia speaks. He's going to talk this week, guys. A CBC interview. What is Canadian Blaken? Is that what that stands Canadian for? Canadian Broadcast. <laughs> Company? It's the CBC is a real thing. Right, just right. right. You know. I'm just, I was trying to imagine like how that would fit in with Canadian Blaken counts. You know, the only reason I know about the CBC is uh, actually two reasons. Uh, the first one being um, with Channel Four with Rick Moranis and John mm. Candy, and yeah. uh, is mm-hmm. that what it was called? Or CCTV? That's or CTV. CTV. Um, and then um, Little Sobo. <laughs> that was a Canadian show. Yeah. Oh wow, I didn't really did not that. get that here. What's weird about growing up as Canadian, like. Uh, Growing up Canadian, that's the story of your life. Growing up Canadian. Well, 
is that all of the shows that I watched as a child had all of the comedians from CCTV and, and all of that on like other shows. So we had a show called the polka dot door, which was kind of like Barney, but not really. And you would open the polka dot door and it was to like some children's like play, whatever. Right. But John Candy would just show up as like a jungle explorer but see, that's sort of what I like about Canadian television is that I see a lot of the same actors and actresses and stuff. I mean, you know, even there's in, only like 20 of them. Yeah. At that yeah. point in time. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> even like with American broadcast stuff, I mean, like, you know, Rika Sharma, you know, oh, she's on Battlestar Galactica. Oh, my God. She's on Supernatural. Yep. I mean, it's just certain Canadian mm. people or stuff that's produced up in that area. Like, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I know that guy. You know, I love so, it. There's only so many people who live in Vancouver. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> Sequoia suggests, um, and then he speaks. <laughs> Welcome to the segment Sequoia suggests, and then speaks. This month we're talking about Planetary by written by Warren Ellis. Artist is John Cassidy, Cassidy. Mm-hmm. and inks and art. What's her name? Laura Dupuy. Laura Dupuy. And it was a wonderful book. It was on an imprint, Wildstorm, which I don't know a lot about. So I was hoping that you two could kind of tell me about Wildstorm and why it came to be. Uh, 92? Yeah, 91, Jim 92. Lee, yeah. I think Jim Lee was was the guy that first... Because, I mean, the original uh, well, books are his, Stormwatch and Wildcats. Well, right. Wildstorm originally started off as... That was just the name of Jim Lee's studio. Uh, right, right, right. And when he made the break... Uh, what was that 94 i want to say when those guys left uh marvel comics to go start image, image right uh wildstorm became it was still a studio but it also became his uh imprint when did dc acquire it uh dc acquired it late 90s like 97 98 okay um but basically the history like i said it was formerly jim lee studio that he shared with his studio mates then it became one of the imprints of uh under image comics along with um what was there uh Extreme Studios. Mm-hmm. When I'm saying that was Rob Liefeld. He had Tom McFarlane Productions. I forgot what uh, Eric Larson's was. But each guy was sort of like their own little company right. or uh, label unto themselves. And you know, part of the thing with Image was when those guys launched their individual comics, they created these imprints because I think what I understood about how the structure of Image worked was who put out whoever put out the most monthly titles or books under an imprint. Uh, I guess it dictated how much, uh, I, I guess, control as far as like, you know, being a shareholder in the company, <laughs> you know, so mm. there was this kind of like a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think like, you know, life was sort of the one who abused it because yeah, he just cranked out absolute garbage. Yeah. That really never went anywhere. But originally under Wildstorm, uh, I think some of their initial titles, of course, uh, Wildcats, that was the first one. Then Stormwatch, uh, there was Gen Union, 13. Gen 13. Who could forget Gen 13? Uh, was it Backlash? Uh, I think Grifter had a couple mini series yeah. and stuff, but yeah, that, that's pretty much what Wildstorm was. And I guess at some point in the late nineties, early two thousands, uh, late nineties, Jim Lee sold the Wildstorm imprint to DC comics. Um, and uh, from there, they started publishing uh, Wildstorm books. He had a couple other subsidiaries. Like, there was Homage Comics, yep. which they were putting out, what, like, uh, at one point they were doing uh, Strangers in Paradise 
when Terry Moore, mm-hmm. uh, Moore left from doing self-publishing to, you know, going to a publishing house. Uh, they had Astro City. They had Leave It to Chance. I mean, it was a bunch of stuff. Funny enough, uh, Jim Lee had just struck a deal with Alan Moore to get his America's Best Comics right. label to be part under the Wildstorm umbrella. Astro City was on ABC, wasn't it? Yeah, Astro yeah. City was. Uh, well, no, no, no. It was homage. It was homage. Oh, comics. that's right. It was yeah. an homage. Yeah. So it became like a shady aftermath Interscope thing. More or less, yes, yes. Um, so <laughs> interesting parallel, but okay, but accurate. I'll accept it. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, he just struck the deal with Alan Moore to get the America's Best Comics imprint. Tom which, Strong, yeah, Tom Strong, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, was it uh was it not tomorrow stories uh was it was the one with city of tomorrow or whatever no, no i can't, that's, I can't that's remember the, that's the disney thing it was but like wait, the yeah the anthology was. book with like gray shirt right and, yeah and all those characters which the irony was you know alan moore had made that whole you know that statement he stuck to he's like when he left dc over the kerfuffle over um watchmen he was like i will never work for dc comics again and somehow and then, jim lee inadvertently Fucked him. Yeah, fucked him and made him work for DC <laughs> Comics again. And he did, yeah. right? Uh, through the like the mid-2000s? Mid yeah, yeah. He, I mean, you know, Moore put out some really great stuff at that time. You know, uh, Top Smacks. Ten. Smacks. Uh, Aerosmith. No, that wasn't. That was uh, Kurt Busiek. But it, it was on. It was on. That's still over. It was, but it was. It was on homage or Wildstorm. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it wasn't ABC. That's right. It was. It was Kurt Busiek. That was right before he started doing Conan. So, uh, so that's pretty much with the Wildstorm, and and that's why I thought it was kind of interesting timing for us to be talking about this book under the Wildstorm imprint by Warren Ellis because just last week, uh, the Wildstorm number one came out by Ellis, um, and this is sort of DC trying to revamp, reboot the Wildstorm universe after the failed attempt of trying to incorporate those characters in the new 52 DC universe. It didn't quite fit properly. So they're making a separate imprint once again, sort of along the same lines as young animal Gerard Way's project. And, you know, it's going to be its own thing. Now, is it the same universe and it has the history of these books or is it a reboot of the universe? This new stuff is a complete reboot. Okay. Even back then, you know, when, um, when DC purchased Wildstorm, it was still its own separate thing. They didn't really yeah. incorporate those characters with the other main DC universe. But from what I understand, just the little bit of reading that I did is that there are a lot of Wildstorm books that were in a Wildstorm universe, like the authority, it overlaps and it's in the same universe as this book, right? Yeah. Um, so how Warren Ellis came into the picture was, um, he had started writing Stormwatch, which mm-hmm. was the number two, big number two book Behind Wildcats. for Wildstorm after Wildcats. And that book was kind of coming to an end. And I tell anybody, I mean, Stormwatch is kind of a forgettable concept. I mean, the whole basic premise was that you had this, this agency that was sort of like the UN, but it was comprised of superheroes from various nations and, you know, they got involved in, you know, global matters and such, but you had someone representing each nation and such, you know, I I don't know what it's comparable to. I mean, it's just another reiteration of the justice league or whatever, or the Avengers for that matter. And it was, it's a pretty forgettable title, but when Warren Ellis came onto the book, I don't know quite, he did something and it's, it's kind of, I mean, he was just being himself, Basically, but he really shifted that book into being something that was good right. and worthwhile reading. So, and that's where he laid a lot of the foundation 
that came for stuff like planetary and uh, authority. the authority and uh, any of the other spinoff books that came after that. Well, it's funny because I took a break from comics. And when I came back in the, the late nineties, early two thousands, right around the time that Sequoia and I met, um, I just remember somebody going, like, Oh, you should read, um, you know, this stuff on Wildstorm. And they were naming books. And I was like, what? No. Like when I stopped reading comics, those books were fucking garbage. Like yeah. I'm not going to yeah. read those books. And then, you know, I, I began reading them. Planetary, you know, obviously wasn't a book before, but Planetary being among some of the Wildstorm stuff that I got into. And man, this authority, uh, uh, what was some of the other stuff that would have been around that exact same time with, I mean, you just mentioned some of them. Um, well, authority, authority was the biggest the, one. Yeah, the big one by far. But yeah, planetary was the second one. Um, you know, like he was still putting out Wildcats and right. Gen thirteen and that stuff. Yeah, and that stuff wasn't wasn't super great. But they were better than they were mid nineties, I'd argue. True, true, true. Um, but yeah, and a lot of a lot of the reason that this kind of exists, as you mentioned a minute ago, as a, as a universe, is the concept of the multiverse. So these aren't technically the same Earth. In a lot of instances, these stories, um, as a matter of fact, there is a planetary authority crossover story, which does involve the blending of those two kind of books and storylines together. But yeah, Warren, uh, Warren Ellis was writing Stormwatch at the time, and you know he was the one who kind of wrapped up the uh, that run and dovetailed it all into his launch of the authority. And you know the interesting thing at this time is is. Yet two things going on in comics, two two major movements. You know, this was the beginning of the era of decompression storytelling, where people were trying to write more towards trade paperbacks and collected editions. But this time during the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of people refer to it as the age of wonder. And that kind of came about because you, because you know, throughout the eighties and nineties, a lot of comic book stories were based around deconstructing comic book characters, uh, exposing comic tropes, mm-hmm. head fitted in there. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and just kind of really taking things apart and like you know, looking at these things under a magnifying glass. The big two, you know, they're guilty of this would be Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, where. You know, it, it definitely those two books caused a shift in the types of storytelling right. people were doing with comic book characters and, and superheroes and such. And I think the whole Age of Wonder was trying to revert back to where we don't need to overanalyze and break down these characters. We need to build them up and and show people why they are wonderful and amazing and, right, yeah. and really play at that. Uh, Author- uh, Planetary was one of those books that kind of falls under that. Uh, that umbrella, but then you also had stuff like James Robinson and Tony Harris on Starman. Mm-hmm. You had Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross, and uh, Brent Anderson on Astro City. Um, I can't remember. I, th- I guess this would have been around the time when um, overall at uh, Marvel you had uh, the relaunch of Avengers and mm-hmm. you know a lot of the core Marvel titles. Uh, you know, heroes returned. They were trying to go back to basics with that stuff. Um, you had. Uh uh, Alex Ross's Marvels. Yep, Marvels. Yeah, that was a big one. Um, I think this would have been after Kingdom Come. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing that was going on around that same time was that you had the introduction of what Ellis refer- and Mark Millar referred to as sort of big screen cinematic storytelling, where they were trying to inject the feeling and the visuals that you you associate a lot with big blockbuster movies and apply that to comic book storytelling. And that's best exemplified by what 
uh, Ellis and uh, Brian Hitch were doing with the authority as well as what, you know, Mark Millar and Brian Hitch were doing with uh, the Ultimates. Ultimates. You know, they were trying to make these really big, you know, larger than life comic stories. You definitely see that in Planetary as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked uh, incredibly well in Ultimates because it's basically the blueprint for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, exactly. Right on down to... Samuel Jackson is Nick Fury. Exactly. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about Warren Ellis when this came out. Obviously, Warren Ellis is known as kind of one of the greats at this point, right? And this is 20 years. Uh, I, I don't think he was. He's no. mostly unheard no, I mean, now. Sorry. Oh, now. Right, right, right. Now, yes. now he is known as, you know, one of, the, one of the greats. When this came out, like you guys were in the shop talking about comic books as, as they came out. What? What was Warren Ellis to you in 1995, 96, when did this came out? This, well, this started in 99, but they previewed it in 98. Yeah. Okay. So in 98, what was Warren Ellis for comic book culture? I mean, he just was a dude that wrote it Wildstorm. I mean. Well, I mean, he would have, he, he was doing uh, Transmet. Right. Transmet. Already by that, that point. would have been, I don't even think he was halfway through Transmet at no, that point. No, he wasn't done. It was, the, it was the, probably the first or second volume of, of Transmet. Year two probably is where he was. The, the actual storyline year two, I think, is the, the second uh, art. And, and the stuff I remember from him prior to that, to that was, um, you know, I remember him doing some work at uh, Marvel, and I didn't particularly care for it. Yeah, he wasn't like a standout guy. No, no. I mean, you know, um, I remember he, him doing the, uh, the whole Counter X line with um, um, over with the Xbox. Like, he, you know, he'd, he, he, he'd relaunched like x-force and x-man and uh, i don't remember if he was doing anything with cable or not but i just i don't know i just didn't really like that stuff i mean prior to that you know he was doing like some marvel uk stuff but you know warren ellis really wasn't on my radar at that time i knew the name but you know like and it's kind of sad to say like you know these guys i consider one of my favorite writers and you know i just there was a time where I didn't know who he was, or I didn't know who he was, and I didn't give a shit. Yeah, well, it was mean, also twenty years ago. So. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, true. it's 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 funny too because I don't I didn't start reading Transmet until Planetary knocked my socks off. You know, Trans Transmet would have been a, a book that people were talking about. It was never a bad book. It just you know I looked at it. It looked very Alan Moorish, and I want to say probably late nineties, early two thousands. I was pretty much done with Alan Moore at that mm. point. At that time, I mean, you just get to phases in your life, and I was in college, and it just didn't seem like anything that was for me. Uh, but Planetary blew me the fuck away, uh, and then he just he didn't stop. I mean, after Planetary and Transmet, I mean, the man has never really taken any time off, with no. the exception of the time he took off during writing this book for personal illnesses and, and personal um, tragedy. So. so let's get into the book then. That's kind of a good history of uh, Wildstorm and then also Warren Ellis. Uh, actually, let me ask you a question because I'm not super familiar with um, John Cassidy. Other than this work, at this time, was he working on anything or known for anything in particular? This was probably the second thing to his name because prior to that, I want to say under the Wildstorm imprint, he had done a uh a western uh comic i think it was called desperados mm-hmm. and and um that's the only thing i knew of his at that time prior to him being on planetary he's done some great books since then but i just yeah i, I mean planetary really is the book that kind of threw him in everyone's face and because i mean from there he went on to do um was it astonishing x-men with joss whedon yeah and yeah. Well, and even before that, I can remember because Astonishing X Men was two thousand four, yeah, two thousand five, somewhere in there. Um, but 
he it, it's kind of funny it, similar to hitch like as when hitch was in the middle of writing ultimates people were just like oh fuck we got to get this guy to like draw our books and he was so slow drawing ultimates that it really didn't matter because <laughs> it wasn't like other projects were pulling him from drawing ultimates at any sort of real pace he just his style is one that takes very very long to construct but similar to that um he became a really sought after artist because after they got probably a year or two into planetary, he, I mean, both the big two were, 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 you know, banging at his door, like, Oh, come draw this book, come draw this book. And during the time that Warren Ellis took off, uh, maybe 2003 mm-hmm. is when Warren Ellis took like a three year hiatus or whatever from yeah. planetary, uh, somewhere in that time. It felt like 10 years. I Waiting for Planetary to pick back up after like 15 or 16 was oh, like yeah, the, the most yeah. excruciating shit in the world. But uh, yeah, Cassidy at that time was was in no real need of, of needing to do Planetary because he had so many commitments at that point. But yeah, Planetary, I mean, was basically his launch pad into everything yeah. else he would do. And most recently, and I've talked about this probably on the podcast, is uh, you know, he, he did the first arc of uh, New Star Wars after it came back to Marvel. It was beautiful. Yeah, you can really see... Um John Cassidy's work change after like 12 or number 12 or 13 in planetary. Like it goes, he gets more detailed about halfway through this arc, which makes sense because it's, it's like a 10 year span. So I would hope that you'd become a better artist or a better at any craft. If you do it for 10 years. Oh yeah. 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 But before we go into like the meta aspects of this book, cause there's a lot of layers that we're going to have to peel away here is can one of you guys give me just a, um, a surface level description of what this book is and what it's about. I mean, it, it really is comic tropes. It is the story of the superhero. Um, and the first issue starts with, um, an, 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 an analog to, to doc Savage in doc brass and doc Savage is, is the person that every major comic book creator, um, we'll, we'll tell you, you know, they credit with, with how they came up with stuff. I mean, Stan Lee has gone on numerous times to say that, you know, Doc Savage was what, you know, instilled in him this idea of wonderment that he could create these larger than life characters, right? He is kind of the, the prototype of the superhero. I mean, you had serialized people, uh, serialized, you know, action stars and things, and you had swashbucklers like Errol Flynn and, um, I mean, who else? I mean, Flash Gordon and things like that be- before that, that time period. But, you know, he solidifies, you know, what a superhero is without necessarily really even having any like supernatural powers. Like when I, I think of him more as like, uh, composite superman with computer mind (laughs) (laughs) i mean he's he's definitely sort of the prototype for captain america because he's he's what humans could be if you know they focused and you know aspired to something greater and better but i mean he's all natural right let me ask this question differently yeah if no one knows anything about comic books Mm -hmm. what is this story about surface level yeah what is this story of this comic. So no nothing meta, no layers. Okay. If you were to explain this to me and I know nothing about comics, what is the story about? It's literally about nothing. This is Seinfeld of comic books. <laughs> it uh it, it's 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 tough to say because it literally is a comic book about comic books. All right. Yeah, let me give I, it a shot. Okay. okay. They call themselves the archaeologists of the impossible. We have a superhuman group that are taking knowledge that they're finding from past or future. They're putting it together, and there is a, another group that they find out later that has 
basically stolen their world and put it out for sale. And they're finding a way to dismantle this group and then share this information and give it to the masses. That's that's as close as I can kind of get. Fill in the color for that's, me. That's the story in a nutshell. But I mean, really, I, I tell anybody, if somebody comes and says, what is this book about? I was like, it's about this group of individuals who are archaeologists who are uncovering the secret history of the Wildstorm universe and finding that anything fictional that you could think of, be it a book, a comic, a novel, a movie, whatever, it's it's all real. And they're slowly trying to discover it's comic book X Files. Yeah, basically, it is comic book X Files. Yeah, with some Indiana Jones thrown in. Yeah, um, it's the the thing that that the the main character Elijah Snow says over and over again is the world's a strange place, and we're just here to keep it that way. Which that's what they do. They keep the world strange. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Ellis has said that part of it was just trying to build some backstory into the Wildstorm universe because you know it was a new imprint, new characters. You know, a lot of it. You know, it took place during the 90s, and I think the furthest back historically it would stretch would be the 70s. But, you know, Ellis was the one who kind of said, hey, you know, well, if you had this weird stuff going on in the 70s in this world, what about the 60s, the 50s, the mm-hmm. 40s? Like, you know, how far back does it go? So it was just him trying to expound on uh, the concept of the Wildstorm universe and, and build this this backstory and history to it. Um, I'd say mm-hmm. on a metatextual level, you know, Planetary is a love letter to genre fiction. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the story before the big reveal. So uh, in the first issue, we are introduced to the main character, Elijah Snow, and he's destitute, uh, hanging out at this diner in the middle of the desert. Uh, drinking cat piss coffee. Yeah, drinking terrible coffee and just <laughs> grousing at the one waitress who works there all, uh, all day. And uh, he's approached by our second member of the planetary organization, uh, Jaquita Wagner, who basically makes an offer to him to join their group and help them, you know, find out these things in the world and uncover them. And you never really get much explanation as to why Elijah's he makes a there. Huh? Yeah. Why, why he's in the desert or why he makes a good candidate or. Yeah. You know, you get, you know, it's hinted at that he does have some kind of special abilities, but you don't really find that out till later on. Uh, and basically, they're like, you know, we'll fund you, give you whatever you want. Just come and join us. And uh, they eventually get him back to New York City, clean him up. And that's where we meet our third member of Planetary, uh, the, the drummer, drummer, who's sort of, only way I can describe him, he's sort of high-functioning, autistic. Mm-hmm. And his, his... With a goatee to match? Yeah, he's... Well, the funny thing is the drummer is very... If you ever meet John Cassidy... He looks very, he is the spitting image of the drummer. The drummer's the spitting image of him. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. He's basically drawing himself when he <laughs> draws that character. It's the weirdest thing to see. Um, Especially as he's gotten older, because that's what we imagined the drummer to look like. Yeah, you know, exactly. If, if the book had gone on. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you think about like 90, I guess when this was being written, conceptualized and early drawn, yeah, 98. Like 98. So, I mean, the internet has been, been around, but it, at this point, in the nineties, like everyone's kind of like so interested by the internet and like, it's so new and weird and like, no one really knows what exactly it isn't going to be used for or what it is. And to have the drummer whose power is to manipulate all technology, like you don't really see the internet um, talked about in this novel or whatever, in this comic book until later on. Mm-hmm. 
And they even say that like it, it was created by um, the people who captured the drummer. But it's just interesting to see like this timeline. It goes from '98 to what, 2007. 2007, and the way this character is utilizing technology is is changing as um, contemporary people are understanding the internet. I thought that was really just really neat. Well, I don't even know if the story advanced that far because, I mean, you know, I, I can recall in some of those latter issues where, you know, they're still using, you know, like little candy bar cell phones. Mm-hmm. And I would say by the time that book wrapped up, I mean, the iPhone would have been announced. It yeah. wasn't out yet, but it had been announced. So, I mean, you know, they had at no point did they ever have flip phones. True. It was all like Nokia's. That was mm-hmm. everybody's using Nokia's. But uh, yeah, you meet the uh, the drummer, and like you said, he uh, he is able to manipulate technology and um, communicate with uh, electronics and he can, machines. He can, he can read like information. He can yeah. smell magic too, apparently. Which was well, because magic's information. Yeah, that's and and this is the book where uh, I mean, you know, you get a lot of this. It, it, I would say if you read Planetary, it would be helpful to read Stormwatch beforehand, but you don't have to. It's not necessary. But that's where you get a lot of the Warren Ellis isms, you know. Uh, but that's a concept you see pop up quite a bit. It's the whole magic being uh, information or, or a higher level of technology, which is not the first one to spouse that idea, but still. And so for the first, like, um, and I mentioned to you guys, this to you guys offline, but the first like 11 or 12 issues we're following around Elijah snow as he is trying to figure out why he's part of planetary who runs planetary. How do they have this much money backing them as they go around the world, stopping basically being Mulder and Scully for X files or being the, like the you know destroying large monsters or just going on weird missions and solving them. And he's like, why Am I doing like, not? Why am I doing this? But like, to What's, what effect am I having? Right. Like, well, the thing is about the first twelve issues of Planetary is this is something that Ellis revisits later in his career, where he's trying to tell self-contained single-issue stories. Mm-hmm. So every single issue of Planetary is them dealing with another case, which you know starts and ends in that issue, and each issue is sort of a uh, homage or a to a love letter to a trope. Yeah, to a trope or, or a, a specific yeah. uh, you know, genre type or element. Um the first, first issue is like pulp heroes. Yeah, so basically in the first issue we're introduced to uh this league of heroes that's comprised of analogs of, you know, old pulp characters. The Phantom. You, yeah, you see um you see Axel Br- Doc Brass, Axel Brass who's sort of the Doc Savage analog mm-hmm. you get um uh, Tarzan, uh, Blackstock, the spider, yeah, Lord Blackstock. Um, Spider's like a mix of like the Phantom and uh, he, he's a mix of the Shadow and, and the, Shadow, the Spider. That's right, yeah. Um, you get um, you know analogs for Flash Gordon, Tom um, Edison. Thomas Edison is part of the team, and he's essentially like you're just a scientist, kind of Tom yeah. Thomas Swift, a boy genius tech guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have all these characters, and like I said, I, my knowledge of pulp characters is kind of limited, so I mean, I had to do a lot of reading other sources to kind of figure out, oh, what's this supposed to be? And there, if you read this book, I also recommend uh, grab one of the many planetary companions out there to kind of help you get some of the references. Because if you miss it, you're missing a lot of the book. Yeah, it's 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 some very rich stuff. And I mean, it's not necessary and it's not, you know, so uh, obscure like 
say reading Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but it does, you know, enrich in the experience. And the first issue is where we're introduced to something that plays a very prominent role throughout the series of Planetary, and that is the snowflake. And the whole thing behind the snowflake is that it is a physical representation of the multiverse and what that looks like. And it's an object that exists in what is it? Uh, 192,641 dimensions dimensional or whatever. space. Yeah. yeah. Which is a, uh, a take on uh, the monster group, which is a mathematical uh, theory of how the universe is laid out. And they, they do toy with that a lot more in the later part of the series. Um, the idea that, that existence is two dimensional, mm-hmm. but all the other dimensions are side effects of those two D planes existing essentially. Like they're all stacked on top of each other and we're all just holograms. Um, but it's all it's all rooted in, in actual science and, and mathematics. Right, right. And you find that this League of Heroes, they've built this supercomputer, which is able to access this uh, snowflake. And map it. And map it. And somehow inadvertently, they've opened a portal to an alternate, uh, alternate dimension or a parallel world. And they're besieged. By this other group of heroes from another dimension who uh, basically are analogs dying. of – yeah, their planet – their world is dying. Yeah. And basically it's an analog of the Justice League. I mean it's, you see yeah. you know, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, uh, Martian Manhunter, all of them. And basically it's, it would be like the crisis from Crisis on Infinite Earths mm-hmm. is happening. And these guys are like, our world is dying. We need to survive. Your world will suit, suit us just fine. And they invade and basically you get this big superhero mashup. You know, where the pulp heroes are fighting the comic book superheroes and such, and they all fight each other to death. And the last remaining sole survivor is uh, Doc Brass, who stays awake and alive for um, what would it have been? 42 years or something like that? Longer than that. Um, 19, what, what year was it turned on? Like 19. There's 1930 something. Yeah, 1936, or, maybe I want to say it was. Oh, yeah. And so he stays awake for 63 years and alive. Uh, his legs completely atrophy, uh, so he just crawl. He's just lying, you know, on the on the floor basically. But he does that to ensure that nothing else comes through. Yeah, no food, no water, nothing. And basically, he stayed in that state for that length of time, and that is how the planetary group find him in that cave in Adirondacks. And legs uh, all shriveled. Yeah, he legs. Goes, he goes uh, by my calculations. It's 1972. How am I doing? And they're like, yo. Yeah, that's you tried. Yeah, it's 1998, <laughs> man. So they um, they rescue him, and they're able to, I guess, confiscate. They do it with his permission, I guess, but they're able to confiscate a lot of the artifacts they find at the headquarters of the the League of Heroes. But uh, I remember reading an interview at the time, but you know, uh, Ellis saying that that issue specifically was sort of a comment on how comic book superheroes as we know them were responsible for the death of pulp heroes, you know, Doc Savage and the type and such. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of a weird incestuous thing where the pulp heroes inspired a lot of the comic book characters, but they wound up becoming so popular a genre that it just overshadowed this other thing and just totally wiped it out as we know it. So that's just issue one. Right. Yeah. (laughs) We have our main character who's so interested in what has been called the fourth man. So there's three members currently of planetary yeah the jakita says there's always three members of planetary and the field team and they speak about the fourth member and he's very interested in who the fourth member is because he doesn't know much about why they do the things they do yeah he's just getting paid at this point and going to 
and do stuff. And what what's really interesting about this is from the from the perspective of the reader is that we are wondering what's going on with Elijah Snow. And he is asking the questions which allows the world building to happen. Right. Is that we're not being told, we're being shown what's happening in this world. And then because we're getting sequential um well, because we're getting these stories comic by comic that kind of live beside themselves, we don't have we don't understand what the larger story is. And that's great for world building because we get to go to um the kaiju um you got Island Zero, which is basically a love letter to uh Japanese kaiju monster movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get, you know, analogs from Mothra and Godzilla and all that stuff. I like how that in that comic they start eating the dead dinosaur things for power or he's whatever. like eat he has well, that like big thing of uh well see i don't know if you guys remember this at the time this would have been roughly uh this would have been after the uh i can't remember the name of the cult but that was the uh oh, the yeah. guys who who had, did the sarin the, gas yeah. attack yep. and the uh uh tokyo subways but that that the character the the cult leader i mean that was a base that was based on um oh my god i can't remember the japanese actor's name um Oh Lord! If I hadn't, if I didn't need to think of it, I would have been able to remember it. But there was this guy, Japanese actor, who was sort of a fascist and uh, sort of a, a, you know, he was he was closeted homosexual, really repressed, and he he was trying to uh, incite this 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 rise of Japanese nationalism. Yeah, he was, time. he was fucking crazy. He was an imperialist apologist. Yeah. Believe I, that, that that it should return to those ways that they should be insular. They shouldn't be, you know, Western. Yeah, and so that's who this. Um, that's who that character was based, was based upon. I can't of, remember his name for the life his, of me. His his line though, whenever he pulls out that cigarette and starts to light it, and he goes, "Ah, yeah, soon we will storm Parliament, and we'll need big guns, big fucking guns. We'll also be ripped to the teats on fine cocaine." I'm just like, <laughs> that's <laughs> such a good line. <laughs> yeah. So every comic is a different part of this world, and it's it's interesting because of the way we get to see comic to comic, we're presented this world a lot easier than um, if it were a sequential um, story at this point. Right, we don't right. really know what it's building to. All we know is that Elijah Snow wants to know more, especially about this fourth man. And then the big reveal, spoiler from 20 years ago, is that Elijah Snow himself is the fourth man. He got these psychic barriers put in his head to save his team because the what do they call themselves the, the four. four the four uh, didn't like the planetary team meddling in their grand plan. So at this point, and the reason I kind of wanted to split up um, the the comic to the reveal and the comic after the reveal is that at this point the perspective that the reader is given is no longer from Elijah Snow, the person who wants to know more. It's now Elijah Snow, the person who remembers and the reader no longer gets that in with Elijah Snow and is instead we, it becomes a sequential story from then on because the world is kind of built and after uh, comic 11 or 12, we kind of know where this is going or, you know, we have an idea of who the bad guy is now and we're, 
we are just along for the ride at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, initially the 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 first twelve issues were a setup. It was like you said, an introduction to the world, world building, um, and we're along with the ride for this mystery. Like, who is the fourth man? It was mm-hmm. it was almost like I, I kind of liken it to watching Lost, where it's like they're investing you into this bigger story, right. and you're like, oh god, I want to find out because I remember you know reading this book with you know a lot of my friends at the time and just speculating like, who is the fourth man? You know, like you know they dropped some hints and I, I you know we thought oh maybe it is Elijah or maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's something nefarious, but you yeah. don't really know. They don't spell it out. So it's something that kind of, you know, entices you to, to come along and, and you're right. Like, like you said, each issue is, is self-contained, but once you get that big reveal, it stops, the book stops being about, or at least it is still about discover, finding the mystery of that world or, or discovery, but then it becomes, it starts becoming this revenge tale. Yeah. You know, after that point, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, and I don't guess I'd ever even really thought about the, the, the schism between the first and the, the, or the, the, the switch in tone between the first and second halves of the, the, the series. But what you get in the beginning is very much you with Elijah Snow in step, uh, along with him finding out who Elijah Snow is. He doesn't really know. You don't really know. And each issue tells you a little bit more about the man. There's even, you know, like issue number five where he sits down with Doc brass and they they talk at length about everything uh that that you know doc brass has done and elijah's like man i wish i could remember all that stuff because i was certainly there for all of it um and as the story goes on and he finds out who he is suddenly he knows who elijah snow is but you don't yeah you know what i mean you still don't know who elijah snow is but he does and so you cease to be finding out and stumbling along the path with him. And you start trying to unravel from the other end who he is, which continues to go until you get to the very end. It's, it's fantastic. And you know, as Sequoia mentioned, there are little hints here and there where, you know, Jakita and drummer will look at each other after Elijah says something, or you can tell somebody that knew him prior pulls a punch. We find out later on that doc, uh, you know, brass lies to him pretty extensively about their, their history together because you know, Jakita and the drummer were basically like, I don't say anything this dude. Um, but one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that a lot of these characters were what's known as century babies. Yeah. Or and millennial. They, yeah. Century babies. Yeah. They were born in 1900. They were born on January 1st, 1900. And they have, they're basically functionally immortal. Um, they all have some sort of a superhuman esque side to them that allow them to do incredible things. Uh, and what we find out is in the beginning, Elijah snow seems like the most mundane of all of them. Uh, pretty much the members of the, the, the league of heroes are all century babies. And that was what allowed them to do what they did, but they all die with the exception of doc brass. Um, and Elijah, you know, seemingly being the most mundane, as we find out later on in the story, is in fact the the biggest century baby of them all. Like he is the most prolific. He is uh, the the one that has the biggest impact on the world around him. And we're even taken, you know, to a point in the story where we learn that you know century babies were created not as regular living things, but they were created in this timeline in order to you know for a purpose, in order to stave off something, in order to to save our timeline or our world. Uh, and so you. You get the sense that, you know, reading the story, like, oh, what's a century, baby? What's what's the importance of it? And it's another one of those pieces that they end up kind of unraveling for you, which is fantastic. Talk about unraveling. This book unravels in an interesting way because the the flashbacks happen very often, but not in a way that 
it stops the story from being told, at least for me, reading it in one sitting, much easier than I could imagine going month to month with this book. Because <laughs> month to month. Well, whatever it was. <laughs> year to year. <laughs> 2.5 a year is basically what it ends up being, right? At one point it was, yeah. Um, because, you know, one one comic book might be the story of Superman, which we're shown, right? Is that all of a sudden Superman goes back. It, like, they show the story of Superman, but instead when his ship lands from whatever they name the... Superman world. I don't even know what they called it in this, but anyways, Superman. Well, they never name it, but I mean, it's one of those things that you could tell everything is Cassidy uses a visual language where he doesn't spell it out, but you can tell who is supposed to be who or what, if you have enough knowledge of this stuff. But just in case you don't, there are lines like you are my wonderful child for like wonder woman or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's like little stuff like that. But I mean, so because you are a wonder woman, you're a wonder comma woman period. And you child, are a wonder <laughs> i just I, I love how they in that issue they they get rid of uh, so essentially the the enemies end up being the fantastic four uh yeah they're, they're, they're the direct analog to the fantastic four and i love the idea that the fantastic four who are you know probably in 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 their own timeline in marvel comics one of the most you know benevolent you know benevolent you know uh, great adventures great adventurers right they're like know. if the brady bunch were superheroes that's what fantastic four is <laughs> yeah, so this is like much. the exact opposite yeah. yeah uh you know but their powers aren't changed like they've got the exact same powers more or less um and their motivation as as scientists doesn't change and it's funny how just that one little you know uh like shade darker that that ellis gives them makes them completely different characters and gives us a completely alternate view of 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 the world and in, in, in which they live and they're damn they're damn scary yeah yeah in this book i mean especially like you know whenever you hear mention of jacob green and you never really see him and then when you do you're like fuck yeah like you really start <laughs> thinking like man the thing really is that is screwed up yeah. when you really think about it yeah you know I think the main difference between the Fantastic Four and the four in this book is the Fantastic Fours, you know, they want information, but they do everything for the the betterment of humanity. And for this group, they f- feel like humanity has already, or at least uh, Green and, I can't speak for her, but... Um, Not Randall Dowling and Sue Susskind. Yeah, they feel like they owe humanity nothing. Or right? Kim Susskind, I'm sorry, Sue is... Yeah. actual Fantastic Four. And I think at one point, Randall Dowling says, it's pure coincidence that we were born on this Earth. It could have been any other Earth. We're here We're here to rule. Mm-hmm. And so it's the exact opposite of what the Fantastic Four is in Marvel. It's like the betterment of humanity versus like me before everything else. The, right. the Scientologists, if you will. Of- <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, uh, the four Scientologists. Yeah, uh, and there. Speaking of the damn scary piece, is because it, even after we find out who the fourth man is, and we get a sense like, okay, it's a revenge tale. Fuck these guys, mm-hmm. because we learn that they kill Ambrose Chase, which is very who is a character who is incredibly dear to Elijah Snow, somebody he has a great affinity for. And it's not just that he's dead and the four killed him; he was killed while Snow had no memory of, of his past and he you know he didn't get to be there when, when he died and he didn't get a say in the mission that they were on when it happened. And uh it's it becomes this like I've got to do anything I can do 
in order to a avenge my friend, which becomes towards the latter part of the book to bring my fan back friend back. Fuck the four. Like, fuck these guys. Like as soon as he figured out like what they were about and what their weaknesses were, he's I'll fucking kill him anytime I want to. Right. Right. You, you find out that, you know, and I think there was some fear, you know, for me back in the day reading the book that maybe Elijah was a horrible person. Right. You know, and he doesn't remember it or realize it, but like, no, he's a very, uh, you know, altruistic guy. Mm-hmm. He's, he is the epitome of a hero. You know, it's uh, I love the speaking of flashbacks too. I love the flashbacks to Elijah's past because Elijah did some crazy shit. Uh, there's reference to the fact that he was on the Nautilus. Yeah. With when- Nemo, which is fantastic. Uh, there is, you know, obviously there's the flashback issue where you find out he trained under Sherlock Holmes. And in, in going and finding Sherlock Holmes, he goes to Frankenstein's castle. He's attacked by Frankenstein's creatures. He finds – what do they call it? An electric map. It's like a, yeah. like a hologram basically. They yeah. call it an electric map uh, of the world with all these secret places. And he uses that to find the location of Sherlock Holmes. He gets there. He's like, hey, uh, you know, I found you. I want to know more about this shit that you guys know about. And it, it turns out that you know, for the 1800s, Whereas, you know, the Century Babies represent the 1900s. For the 1800s, there's this League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, basically. Uh, yeah. the, they call them the Open Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've got uh, the Invisible worry, they, Man. They call them extraordinary in the book. They do. Like, yes, yeah. there were a bunch of gentlemen, and, and this was extraordinary. Rough. This was the same time that, you know, Moore was putting that book out under uh, Wild Store, America's Best Comics. And, right. yeah, I mean, you know, Ellis... I think he was very aware of what was going on around him. You know, and that was sort of his homage to that stuff because the, I just want to go back real quick. The issue you mentioned, which, uh, Ambrose is, uh, killed, that was his homage to, um, Grant Morrison yeah. and the conflict he was going on with Warner. He had going on with Warner Brothers and the Wachowskis over the Matrix because, you know, Grant Morrison had done the invisibles mm-hmm. and he found that a lot of the concepts that he introduced in that book got lifted. And placed into the matrix and he felt like he got ripped off and Warren was sort of like, Hey man, you know, whether they, you know, whether this, uh, this lawsuit goes your way or not, like I'm in your corner, you know, I got your back. And, you know, I thought that was a really beautiful gesture and uh, stuff. I mean, even whenever we saw Warren speak, uh, you know, a couple months ago and he talked about, uh, was that before Christmas? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> that, like that's been so long ago now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, I want to say it was early December. Uh, he was talking about his, he, how much he adores and respects Grant Morrison. I mean, like, you know, what, I think he was asked the question, like, where do you find inspiration? And he said specifically like Grant Morrison. Uh, and you can see a lot of that in planetary that even though that a lot of these writers are contemporaries with him, he very much, uh, you know, shows, uh, you know, the homage or the, the, the respect and the, the appreciation for the works of others. So you've got all that going on um, in, in some of these stories. Uh, it is funny, too. I love the idea that the Hellblazer character, Jack Carter, is that his name? Yeah. Jack yeah. Carter, uh, who's an 80s hero, basically. You know, we talk a lot about the, the century as a whole in these books, uh, the 1900s as a, as, a, as a thing. But there's a specific 80s hero. It's, it's John Constantine, a.k.a. Jack Carter. They go to his funeral, and there's like a bizarro character, essentially, that he – he sets up. Uh, well, well, no, no, that would have been. I think that was supposed to be 
uh, an homage to Miracle Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, because it's a British Superman, basically. Right, right. Uh, but it, you find out that he sets him up and makes him look like he's uh, in a scandal, like a homosexual scandal. And so the superhero attempts to come back and kill him, and he's, he fakes his death and does all this magic, essentially, to to get you know Miracle Man in a position where he can shoot him with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that issue, and I want to say that was issue, what, five, four uh, or five? You, I think I took notes on it. Uh, Seven. Seven. Wow. Okay. But that was sort of Ellis's, you know, hat tip to, you know, Neil Gaiman's work yep. on and, and Garth Ennis's work for Vertigo at that time. But then also sort of how that ushered in this other ugly thing in the 80s where people tried to apply that very British, serious straightforward or even kind of dark sensibility to American superhero comics. The stuff we talked about last month with V for Vendetta, basically. Yeah. And the Superman character who shows up is obviously supposed to be sort of uh, a, a mashup of Superman as well as Alan Moore's miracle man where, you know, you, you, you know, Superman isn't supposed to be like a vertigo character. Superman is Superman. He needs to say separate, but you know, people, People thought, or writers thought, that by running these characters through the gutter, that somehow they were making more them more mature. Um, and that's sort of the thing that Ellis kind of gets to at the end of that series is with the Jack Carter character. He's like, you know, I had my time. The eighties were great, but it's time for me to become something else and becomes Spider Jerusalem, basically, yeah. Metropolitan, <laughs> which is great when you think about it because. Um, did did Alan Moore create John Constantine? Yes, yes, he did. So he created John Constantine, which is how the character starts out. Mm. Then he becomes a Warris Ellis creation, who at the beginning of his own book is Alan Moore. Yeah, basically. Which is a really strange kind of <laughs> – all of that is, is like a really weird, uh, I guess, juxtaposition. But it, it, it's, it's stuff like this, and we could go on and on you know, with all these different references and, and homages throughout the books. But you get this sense uh, to go back to, I think, where I started with this. Uh, issue is it 12 or 13 where he meets Sherlock? I think it's, I think it's after you learn he's the fourth man, his memory blocks are removed for sure. Um, and they're removed by John stone, who is Nick Nick Fury, Fury, which is, which is fantastic because he's kind of a mix of Nick Fury and James Bond. Yeah. Well, Nick Fury is is James James Bond. Bond. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, uh, but he does have more of the the debonair piece than I think mm-hmm. Nick Fury does, because uh, he's always you know he the adventure that you see them in together where he's fighting like the Fembots from mm-hmm. another dimension, very uh, much like the, the Nick Fury one. stuff that you got in the uh, uh, in the early Nick Fury days. And I guess one other thing I should point out about this book, you know, rereading that I loved an awful lot was the covers. And how they all, always telegraphed what was inside or what genre yeah. each issue was going to be dealing with, because Cassidy changes his art style to reflect the to time. reflect yeah. whatever it is. So I mean, like the cover for that issue where Jon Snow, I mean not Jon Snow, John Stone shows up. It's like I mean, it's very uh, yeah, Jim Steranko, you know, sixties Nick Fury comic and. I mean, uh, he, City Zero is basically like you know a, a them or yeah, attack Japanese, of the fifty foot woman or yeah big crazy fonts you know in J- Japanese uh, kanji you know uh, it's the third issue with the uh, Hong Kong ghost cop I mean that's his homage to John Woo yep. and that looks like a movie poster you know that you like get from Hong Kong and yeah Hong Kong action <laughs> flick Glock opera if you will a Glock opera yes <laughs> Gun Fu 
But all these things come together, and there's the really great scene where where Dracula decides, like, fuck this guy. Come on, Holmes. He's he's been hiding in the shadows behind Sherlock the entire time, and he's like, fuck this guy. Like, we can't have this guy interfering with our shit. And it's it's this this mashup of the the 1800s meeting the 1900s, and Elijah f- freezes Dracula in the air, and then he kicks his dick off. <laughs> it's true. You know you know who he couldn't have done that to though. Who? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's dick is could it couldn't be done. I know that this the whole reason that you just told the story was just so you could talk about Kurt Russell's genitalia. <laughs> it's his dick. We're not talking about his balls. It's his dick we're interested in. So don't put this we in here. <laughs> I'm not Amos interested. isn't here to talk about the no. dick with me, so I mean you th- you two are the only ones who talk about this. Me and Blake really try to refrain from. I don't say anything at all. I do not understand this fascination with it's it, Kurt I, Russell's dick. It's whatsoever. not that either of us care about Kurt Russell's dick at all. At all, it, not even a little it's bit. That it's that I Blake don't. hates it, so it's got to go in. Okay, I'm um, just indifferent. Never say it. Blake hates it, so it's got to go in ever again. <laughs> I'm just saying, never. So. Sherlock teaches Elijah everything he knows. And at this point, you know a little bit more about the character. Like, oh, okay. He knows that he's been writing the planetary guide since he met Sherlock, basically. And he's been trying to uncover the secrets of the world, as Sequoia mentioned, for a very altruistic purpose, to give it to the people. He wants Earth to be bettered by everything that's out there, and he wants to to find as much of that as he can, because he can. Right? Um, And the four want the exact opposite. They want to destroy it if they can't control it. Right. If it's something that benefits them, they want to they want to covet it, keep it, or destroy it if it if it benefits someone else. Um, and you know that sets the tone for the the second half of the series. And they still do serialized you know different pieces from different lore um, and different genres you know of, of fiction. But you you get the machine starts at that point, and you know it, Elijah realizes his purpose. Like I got I got to fucking take these guys out because they represent everything opposite of what Planetary was designed to do. So let's talk about two things to kind of round out the story so that we can talk about the ending. Because we can't talk about the ending without, I think, two plot points. So one is the weird spaceship that we're introduced to. I'll pause and go to my next point, then you guys tell me about the spaceship, okay? And then the second is exactly the deal that the four have made with the other multiverses. So I think those are the two plot points we need to understand before we kind of shape it out. So talk to me a little bit about this spaceship. So the spaceship is, uh, we're introduced to earlier on in the book where we meet, um, what is the guy's first name? Something wilder. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Uh, Anyway. So basically that character kind of winds up being sort of a captain Marvel Shazam analog, but, um, he's imbued with this alien technology and he's able to communicate with this massive spaceship, which I believe is called a shift ship. And that concept had existed if, and you would be familiar with it if you were reading the authority because the authorities, their, their headquarters, the carrier is a shift ship is basically a living spaceship. It sails the bleed. Yeah. The bleed, which is the space that exists between, uh, alternate worlds and dimensions and stuff and is able to sail the multiverse but somehow was stranded in our reality on our earth uh you find out that it was responsible for destroying the dinosaurs when it crashed yeah. <laughs> and basically it's been trying to find a crew of, of six or seven actually you need seven oh, six which is the magic number yeah. for superhero teams mm-hmm. uh but it needs a crew of seven i think that's the uh, you know, I know as a pilot, an engineer, uh, to actually power the engine, mm-hmm. navigators, captain, you know, all that crap. 
captain being sort of the thing that Wilder becomes when he uh, touches it. Yeah. Um, and you find out later that the four set this in motion. Right, right, right. This is uh, through Mina Hark. Or did they crash the ship? No, the no, no, ship no. crashed on its own. Cra- okay. Long, no, long before accident. the four existed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you, you've got that piece of it. And in that issue, which I think is pretty early on, issue four, Warren Ellis goes, and this is about the time that Jakita and Drummer are like, whoa. Because even he's like, look, I don't know what the fuck we do, but I'm telling you right now, Planetary is going to help you find your crew. And Jakita and Drummer are like, why? Why would we help this guy? Like, we, we've, we've got the information that we needed. He's told us about it. And he's like, doesn't matter. You've got all the funding that you need. We're going to take care of it. We'll help you find this, this crew together. Um, and very, I mean, you don't even really get told about it. You know it's a thing because they reference it every couple of issues, but they're silently finding people to put in the ship throughout the series as they as they go along. Even though they don't explicitly mention it, but it, it is revealed later on. Right, it's right. inferred, and so that ship exists, and and then we're given. Actually, let me ask you guys a question. Yeah. So it's it's a later issue, but you know we find out that the four. Same story as the Fantastic Four go up into space. But they also mention a space gun. So there's some pipe in like 1861 or something like that. And they shoot a ball to the moon. Okay, that's, What was all that about? That's the Jules gun Verne. club issue. And that was that was basically Jules Verne. You know, what was it? Journey to the Moon? That was him? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's all it was. It was uh Okay. And that's the interesting thing if you go back and you read Vern that a lot of the stuff that went into early NASA that guy was able to figure out on his own. Right. You know, basically that you needed to have some kind of projectile powerful enough to break Earth's gravity to be able to go into space and travel and, you know, the whole concept of orbits. I mean, you know, he was figuring this out in the, you know, eighteen hundreds. You know, when we didn't really have the technology or the know-how to travel into space, he kind of speculated about a lot of this stuff. But that was sort of their homage. And that's probably one of the few issues, the uh, a few of the latter issues where they tell a story that doesn't really play into the overall bigger story. Yeah, they, there's a couple right there together. You get Opac Ray. Which was sort of Jakita's origin right. uh, story. Yeah, that's true. And you learn you learn a lot about her father, Lord Blackstock, who was mm-hmm. part of the the League of Heroes. He's he's kind of a Tarzan slash Alan Quartermain. Yeah, yeah. He's he's was a savage because I guess his family was crashed in you know in the jungles of Africa, and he makes it back out. But he's also he also returns there to adventure and things. He's kind of an asshole too. Yeah, I mean, they, Ellis kind of plays against the trope of you know. Uh, civilized white man savage black you know tribesmen where you know opec ray is this hidden city like in africa yeah. yeah kind of atlantis where there's this isolationist society that is you know got knowledge that is far more advanced than you know the rest of the world but they keep that to themselves he mentions that uh, uh an adventuring club a, a group of european adventurers find like what's basically a gold iphone in the jungles yeah yeah <laughs> gold video communications device <laughs> the thing i really liked about that issue with opec ray was <laughs> um black stocks just inherent racism where you know um Snow kind of pauses to him, like, "Hey, man, you've been living here the whole time amongst these people. Like, why haven't you slept with so and so?" And Black Sex just sort of like, you know, it occurred it, to him to never, sleep with a chimp before he would ever sleep 
with a black woman. It's yeah. like, what the hell, oh, man? Oh, I thought that was just a gay thing. I th- no. Oh, so no. he was talking about having sex with animals. Yeah. yeah. Oh, because I took it as like... Bestiality came to him more naturally. Whoa. That is super <laughs> racist. <laughs> I thought it was like a like he yeah he had sex with dudes. No, no. wow, no, talking no. about bestiality that went yeah. over my head. <laughs> because another thing, another piece of outside fiction, if you're going to read Planetary, if you're going to approach it, or if you want to build up your knowledge prior to reading it, is uh, I think it's what Philip Jose Farmer is known for crafting this lore that is known as the um, oh lord, it is the oh is is the world tree. I can't remember the name of the exact lore, but basically he started writing uh, fiction where he was able to tie, create this, this, this overall concept of all the pulp characters yeah, are, tied together. Are, are tied together. He actually um, wrote the, uh, or did, I don't know if it was actually ever used for the film, but he wrote the screenplay for the, the, the Doc Savage film. Wold Newton Family Group. That is the name of the lore that he created. So basically he was the one that connected that, uh, I think the Lone Ranger was an ancestor of the Green Hornet. Cool. And there, there's some familiar relationship between that connects them to, you know, Tarzan or Doc Savage. Like mm-hmm. all those things are interconnect, interconnected in some way. Because is, in all reality, they are connected because they are analogs of each other over and over and over. So more or less, yeah, yeah. Well, so and we get we even get a little piece of that with uh, the Lone Ranger in um, being William Leather's not actual forefather, but. Uh, right. part of his his lineage or whatever and that's one of the reasons we find out that William Leather who's one of the four he's the the human torch we find out that he actually joins the Randall Dowling in in their ambitions and adventures to take over the world more or less for lack of a better phrase uh, because he feels cheated out of being a century baby not, right. even, not even that he's told that he's cheated he's told by Randall that he was cheated out mm-hmm. of his birthright right and he's easily manipulated into being the strong man of the group the interests of the bad guys in this aren't really the story. The story is all of these layers that we've kind of been peeling off mm-hmm. and analogs that we're talking about, but there still is a surface level story that's told here that is kind of the, um, the, sh- the shovel, if you will, for uh, bringing us from one trope to another and one character to mm-hmm. another. So the four shoot themselves into space on some kind of mission. They're NASA's like, like, Giddy pigs, right? Like black internet, like sort of thing. Like they're their deep net uh, or dark net. They are essentially like for show to win the war against, you know, the, the Russians during the Cold War. Uh, for show, we do the Apollo missions and we send people into space to land on the moon. But we've been doing all these things years earlier with scientists from Germany rescued, you know, um, during World War II with the, the, the greatest minds of the century. We're doing this work. And they recruited the most ambitious people they could find. And one of them was brilliant scientist Randall Dowling. And he puts together a group, his, uh, I, I guess she's former Nazi. Uh, intelligence or former mm-hmm. Nazi scientist Kim Suskind, mm-hmm. who's they, they say she's a doctor, so it's implied that she was part of the Third Reich. Um, and his his wife, uh, they recruit you know a, a pilot, uh, Jacob Green. He's a test pilot basically, uh, and then they've got William Leather, who's um, kind of the the dirty laundry guy. Like he's the guy they like errand boy more or less. He's he gets phys- stuff done. He's physically able and doesn't have much of a moral compass, and he allows them to do uh, the things they want to get done that they don't want to bloody their hands with. Quite literally, in most cases, 
But they go into this mission um, that you, you you first learn about goes horribly wrong like the Fantastic Four, and they cross over into the bleed, and it changes them. And we find out later on that it was all done, uh, that that reading planetary books, Dowling is able to figure out that there's a multiverse and mm-hmm. that there are um, alternate worlds out there, and he's able to – communicate across the bleed with a planet that drummer uh very humorously later on calls planet toilet earth on fire or yeah, whatever it is yeah. <laughs> which looks like uh apocalypse um, yeah, essentially is, yeah. yeah um what's his face uh dark side yeah but he he communicates with them and they make this deal that you know give us unlimited power because it's essentially a, a version of earth where they figured out how to turn people into superheroes mm-hmm. so that everybody's got a, a superpower and the thing that that frustrates dowling to no end is that he can't be a superhero is that by circumstance there are these century babies and these people that were you know the offspring of century babies that have these amazing gifts and he's it's it's unfair that he doesn't have that so he wants to have it as we mentioned earlier and let no one else possess it on this this reality so his mission is to get the powers, come back and make themselves the most powerful thing. Now, did they get those Fantastic Four powers from this Earth, or do they get it before they're in negotiation with the Super Earth? They get it from the Earth. There's okay. a gate that like is outside the the planet Earth or whatever that's up near. Obviously, they weren't able to choose, right? No, uh, <laughs> they even have a conversation about it where Kim goes, you know, do you know what will happen to us? And he goes, no, the effects are completely random, you know, based upon you know your person. Like your genes will be modified in such a way that we we don't know what will happen, but it will imbue you with with special gifts and powers that other people not like the humans. Yeah, yeah, more or less. So they fly through this gate. Um, they return to our space time, and they're changed forever. Uh, their powers are, and I, I like, I, I like that when we finally learn what Dowling's powers are, which we've always assumed to be able to stretch. It's the way they describe his ability to stretch is that he's able to actually stretch himself into the smallest places of existence possible. So he can actually stretch himself so much so that he. He can influence people by living inside them. He can plant like eggs of his person, of his brain inside other people's brains to the extent where they don't even know that he's inside of them mm-hmm. and that he could be controlling them the entire time, which is one Pretty of the cool. ways he gets to, to John Stone. Right, right. So they've got these, these powers. They come back, and the deal is they're given these powers um, in order to sell Earth to these people. Within 50 years. Right. And, we're, and we've picked up in this – some 48 or 49 years later. Um, pretty much next year, they're supposed to give over Earth to mm-hmm. evil Earth, whatever you want to call it. And towards the end of the book, um, Elisha Snow does what he thinks only they could do, like a, a one last shot. Because you have to understand that at this point, all of the information that were in the planetary books, minus two things are what um, the four know. I mean, they know everything at this point. And we're, we're skipping two pretty cool deaths, but I don't think aren't really important to the, in the story arc of the end. But the, at the very end of the book, is down to two members of the four, which are Kim Cattrall. No, what's her name? <laughs> Dr. Kim Suskind. Or Kim Suskind. Or... And um, the... Randall Dowling. And Randall... God, I can't remember his name. That's such a forgettable name well just really quickly so the human torch character they capture uh in the gun club issue he shows up to figure out what's returning to earth and you know so that the four can know john stone tips off planetary they arrive ahead of time and set up a trap so uh 
you know, Leather arrives to find Elijah there. Jakita runs up and basically stabs him in the bit in the you know the the base of his brain in his spinal column mm-hmm. with like a tranquilizer, and she holds it there so that Elijah can kick him a couple of times. <laughs> uh, they they put him inside like the deepest darkest basement of a planetary facility and Elijah tortures this guy which is what you were talking about earlier with maybe Elijah's a super bad guy yeah, and Jakita yeah. and Drummer question it as well because they're not they haven't been on the field team for a long time they're they're not nearly as as old as Elijah obviously and they certainly uh you know the spikes in the eyeball man. yeah Ugh. Because he, I mean, he he knows that he can regrow his eyes, so yeah, he yeah. knows that it's only through you know submitting him to excruciating pain. And he even makes the line, he's like, "Well, we have William Leather in custody, and I'm sure that given long enough, I could probably kill him." Mm. <laughs> uh, and they know they can't do anything to Jacob Green, so they lure him out to like a like a ship, like a living spaceship. And let's go ahead and say that the Green is the thing. Yeah, he's the thing, right? Yeah. He horribly mutated. Like just he got the shit into the stick, just like the thing got the shit into oh, the yeah. stick. Yeah, yeah. Um, horribly mutated, but because he's now the errand boy in, in William Leather's absence, and then they send him through the bleed to intercept the ship that has has come within a, a few light years of Earth, and uh, they blow up their own ship and send it hurling back through space uh, it, along with you know his ship. So he's lost forever on this fucking living spaceship. Which I, I love that issue. I mean, you know, the cover was basically an homage to the poster for 2001 mm-hmm. Space Odyssey. And a lot of people say, you know, reference that issue in saying it's an homage to uh, Rendezvous with Rama mm-hmm. and stuff. But that's that's a fantastic issue. Like, he doesn't kill him, but he he's stranded. He ain't ever going to be an issue or problem ever again. Yeah. No way to come home. Yeah. So you've got two left. And, you know, what you mentioned was, is that one one of the greatest things about, you know, Elijah regaining his memory is that now he remembers that he was purposely leaving things out of planetary guides so that he would not be giving all the information to the four. Right. So one of those instances is when they go to the the rock in Australia and they have had the other half of the song that wasn't in the planetary book. And they use that against the four basically to, to, to knock them off balance and to, to keep them from opening this portal that would allow them go into to go into dream world. Um, uh, the song world, which is, you know, basically where all of reality comes from, yeah. uh, where a colleague of his, who's obviously Captain Marvel had gone in, you know, 50, 60 years prior. Uh, and then the second piece of it is the knowledge of the shift ship. They never gained that knowledge because as soon as that guy got transformed, they were there to basically take him in. And, and Elijah Snow wasn't writing any um, planetary guys because he didn't know who he was at the time. Right. Right. So they they meet out in the desert near the the, the place where Jakita first finds Elijah. Uh, you know, he says, you know, bring me everything that you know. Bring me a, a compendium of everything that you've ever learned about everything because I want to know it. And this amuses uh, Randall Dowling, who just like any, you know, fucking. Uh, megalomaniac uh, is his bravado, his, eh, not that his, his pride, his arrogance, you know, gets the better of him knowing that there's no way that Elijah snow could defeat him. He even makes the, you know, mention, he says, you know, tell me why you're, you're, you're doing this and I'll know if you're lying. He's like, well, I could kill you. And Elijah says, I could kill you at any time. So that's not important, but I do have something that you want. And so, so Randall thinks that Elijah is underestimating him, but really it's just a, a ploy to knock um, Randall off balance. Yep. So he scans him. He sees nothing. He tells, you know, like uh, they, he arrives with a drummer. Randall scans Elijah. Elijah. And when, when they meet in the desert, uh, he doesn't have anything on him. And so he's like, cool, let's do this thing. But unbeknownst to him, 
The drummer slips a device of his own manufacture onto Elijah's person, which basically blocks all of the, the, the short range and long range communications that the four possess. And there's no way for them to get to their ship. Elijah opens a door through the bleed into the shift ship. And then the shift ship raises out of the desert. Cause that's where it's been for millions of years. Uh, it opens a huge hole in the middle of the desert, hundreds of feet deep. And it drops uh, Randall and Kim hundreds of feet to their death. And that's, I love how he doesn't kill them in a really, you know, creative way. He doesn't go about it. He's been torturing, you know, William Leather and he sends Jacob Green into deep space. But for, for Randall and, and for Kim, he's, just like, he's like, fuck you. Yeah. Just drop you off this fucking cliff. <laughs> drops them into this hole. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the guy, uh, whose name escapes us, who is the, the Shazam character. He's like, what shall we do now? And he goes, uh, fly around, pick up my team. Then we're going to pick up the bodies and then we're going to do what we've got to do. They travel back across the bleed to the, the toilet on fire earth, as a drummer <laughs> calls it. And they just throw the bodies of Kim and, uh, Randall out onto the, the surface of the earth. And there's a little, a little box which plays a recording, you know, that's essentially like, Hey, you want this earth? You can't have this earth uh, to let you know how dangerous and powerful we are. These two pieces of shit that you sent through time to come and, and take this over earth over for you. We fucked them up. Look at them. We, we smashed the shit out of them. Mm-hmm. So don't come here. And of course the aliens are enraged. I guess technically they're earthlings. Uh, they're enraged. They smashed the, 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 the box and presumably, you know, we've, he saved all of, all of our earth, all of our known earth. And they go back to finish the last piece that, uh, that Elijah wants, um, that he he feels is his purpose. He he saves information. He saves this world. He saves people. And the only thing he's never been able to save is Ambrose Chase. Well, let's pause right there because from what I've read, Comic Twenty Seven came out um, did not come directly after Twenty Six, and that Twenty Six was in all was planned to be the last comic. Twenty Four. It was originally supposed to be a Twenty Four. Right issue series and for whatever reason whatever reason it went to 27 instead sure but for, yeah. so what i what i'm getting at is what i read was that originally it would be inferred that they bring chase back from the dead but they didn't and from what um dave told me offline earlier is that or maybe it was you that um chase coming back was actually bringing back warren ellis's dad yeah right? that was what, dave said that because if if you just read to the end of twenty six, it feels complete to me. Twenty seven is kind of tacked on, even though it kind of ties the laces on the shoe a little bit. It it doesn't add anything that twenty six didn't already have, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you get the whole you know resolution with them. They defeat the bad guys, but and you know you kind of fast forward, and you know Elijah kind of fulfills his. I won't say destiny, but he fulfills his promise where he's trying to make the world a better place by, you know, kind of distilling a lot of this technology knowledge. Curing cancer, blah, blah, blah. New technology, so on and so forth. But it's the one thing that's just nagging at him. He's like, I'm doing all this wonderful stuff, but it's still not enough. I And like Dave said, you know, the one thing that he was not able to complete, the one person he was not able to save was Ambrose. So, um, And all he does is save people in this book. He saves Carta, Jakita, Jakita. They saved the drummer. He saves the drummer. As like everyone around him, he is he is the person who he even says it's what I do. I save people. Right. And he wasn't there to save. His memory had been wiped, and he was exiled. Am- he, yeah, he couldn't save Ambrose because he wasn't there. He wasn't a part of it. Yeah. He wasn't right. a part of that. So he felt he felt like it was his duty 
to save him. And I, I, when, after finishing 26, I just assumed that he does save him. And then we read 27. And I don't think I would have had a huge problem with the way this ended if there wasn't the conversation with future. Like, they, he creates a time machine. Right. Or he, the drummer, creates a time machine, right? And the whole idea with a time machine is that you supposedly you can't you can't go back in time until a time machine is made. That's right. I think that one of my favorite things about issue twenty seven though is that theory because that's a that's a popular theory that if time travel were possible, because most most of the the extremely learned uh, astrophysicists and uh, and uh, I guess individual rocket scientists for lack of a better word, right? Like <laughs> we'll tell you that uh, there's only one outcome for everything is that there's not multiple branching paths. Every time you make a decision, that's the decision and everything is always going to play out in the future. Exactly as it's happening, right? Is that it's not necessarily predetermined, but there's only one eventuality for everything. Right. So what this theory is suggesting is that the moment a time machine is completed at that moment, does the fracture occur? And that only afterwards are there multiple timelines because you break just like you have a, you know, a, a sheet of glass only until you break the sheet of glass. Are there multiple pieces of glass? Right. So this, I, I kind of love that idea because, uh, and there's a, there's other, you know, time travel fiction that plays with it, but it's not that like, I'm gonna go back and see Mark Twain and ride a fucking dinosaur. And <laughs> it's that, like at that moment, everybody who's got a time machine obviously wants to go back to the furthest point in time. That they could travel to, which is the moment the first time machine was turned on and the timeline shattered. So the big reveal is that they're like they're waiting for the future to invade them and to just begin fucking everything up. And it turns out that as an amazing steward of of Earth, of our Earth and our timeline, that after building that time machine, the only thing they ever did with it was keep it confidential to planetary because the only people who step through time are themselves from other, other timelines. And they basically come to say, Hey, you get to save Ambrose and there's a whole lot next. And then it's kind of the end of the comic. Yeah. And I think that was a nice way to kind of end the book because I mean, as long as it took for it to complete and as much as we <laughs> loved it, I, and part of me kind of secretly hopes that at some point Ellis might revisit that story and i'm fine if he doesn't but you know what does he have to say now about genre fiction or technology or any of that stuff you know especially yeah. with the this new wild storm but like i said if he doesn't come back to it that's fine also who would you recommend this to who would you not recommend this to and i i suspect that most of us are going to put this in upper echelon but how do you how do you rank this uh i'm going to answer this in order for you I would recommend it to anybody that likes comic books. I said at the beginning of the podcast when you asked me to explain it um, unsatisfactorily that it's a comic book about comic books, but it's also about genre film. It's also about monster movies. It's about uh, you know eighteen you know nineteenth uh, century literature. And if there's something that that was about the extraordinary or the fantastic, uh, then it's it, it's represented here. Yeah. And if you were a kid ever, and most of all of us were, except for those of us that grew up very boring. <laughs> if you were ever a kid and you were into something, there's something in this book for you. Uh, even for people that don't really read graphic novels, um, you know, I, I've recommended this book before, and you know, they read it and they're like, "Oh man, this shit was so good." And they're not going to get all the references no, if they're not big no. comic book readers, you know. But they're going to get the Godzilla reference, uh, and they'll get the uh, the City Zero experimentation reference right there with with the big ants and and everything. Like they're going to get pieces of this and really enjoy it. And you know, the 
I, I don't think that you enjoy it more if you know all the references. It's certainly fun, but I don't think your enjoyment of it changes. People I would yeah. not recommend it to. Casual would, readers. Casual readers. Yeah. Because there's nothing in it for them. Like, what? Then Godzilla showed up? Like, what? If you can't make the connection as to why that's significant or why it's in the book at all, then it's not important. So casual readers is, is not, you know, if you've never even had the slightest passing interest in science fiction or superheroes or, uh, you know, HG Wells or, you know, any of those things, this, there's not going to be anything in this for you. No. If, if you like documentaries and nonfiction, then you, this is not for you. Um, Hell, you probably ain't even listening to this podcast. Yeah, so fuck you. You Get like the Amish. Here. We can say fuck the Amish because they can't listen to this unless they're on Rumspringer. In which case, I'm sorry. Um, this is a podcast. <laughs> Let me describe to you. Uh, what was the, the last question there? Oh, where do I rank it? Um, I, I go back and forth with whether Warren Ellis is actually my favorite writer of all time. But he's definitely up there with, with Alan Moore and, and Grant Morrison and several others. Uh, Neil Gaiman. They're all British. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. Well, and then there's the, 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 the true greats, the, the, the American innovator, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, uh, the like. Um, this might be my favorite comic book of all time. I mean, it's, I, go, I go back and forth about it, but I can, I can honestly say there's nothing that I've reread as many times as Planetary. I, I reread it at least once a year because I, you know, I owned all the issues, and I reread them for a long time, and then I bought the Omnibus, um, and I, re, I reread that several times. Yeah. And then I, I, I bought them digitally, and I reread them a whole bunch of times because it's always on my iPad. I might occasionally just want to go back and read you know, Opac Ray or Gun Club. or uh, it's, easy, it's easy to read. Um, it's easy to pick up an issue and read, which is but it's nice. hard to not finish the story once you've done one. Like, yeah, it, yeah. It's tough not to go back and just go through them all again. Um, I think the only thing that I've even read as many times that comes close to this is uh, Grant Morrison's run on new X-Men. Mm. So for me, this is huge. Like this, this might be my favorite comic book of all time. I mean, there's a reason we've been harassing you to read this since shit. the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> to read this, this story. It's yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I begrudgingly read it. So. Yeah, <laughs> were you gritting your teeth the whole time? I did not like this book until really? episode twelve. Oh, okay. Or until comic twelve, but then it made sense. Okay, um, and then as a whole, because I'm not like I'm a comic book guy, but like I am not meta. I, I like surface level stories. I like mm. to just read a good comic with superheroes that do things that aren't like deep and doesn't have a lot of meaning. Like that's kind of how I unwind. Like some people watch like reality television. Mm. I'll read like the X-Men now. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, <laughs> it's not very good, but it's familiar and I like it. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me feel good. No, so that's, that's I don't fair. need, I don't need something with a lot of levels to peel away to enjoy. Um, but I did really enjoy this once I digested all of it or almost all of it. Like as soon as I got to like comic 14 or 15, I was like, okay, I really like this. And then as a whole being able, I read most of it today, honestly. Um, it was a great read. It had a real arc. It has multiple layers and I can see myself reading it again because this was my first read to really kind of enjoy like the nuances and and little parts of it. So it's a, it's a book that, if you're a comic book guy or girl, you're going to really enjoy because of all the levels that you can go back to and comic all the little person. Yeah. All the little things, <laughs> comic book dog or cat, you know, you're going to, you're going to love this. Read it right. Meow. Lord, Lord Blackstone would have approved of dogs and cats and chimps. And orangutans. <laughs> oh, 
Hmm. Sexual relations with an African. I, I'm not quite sure about that. Hmm. My name is Lord Blackstock, and I'd never considered that before. Hmm. <laughs> Has anyone told you that in that light you look like a skinny orangutan? <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. It, it, and I don't know where it ranks in my top whatever, but I can tell you that it's it's crafted very well. And I would recommend it to anyone who's a comic book person. And I would not recommend it to anyone who didn't read comic books. And I was trying to get them to read a comic book that that is also a good work of fiction or something. You know, like, you wouldn't give this... Like, I wouldn't try to get my wife to read this or my dad who reads nonstop, right? But... Anyone who's into pop culture, yes, mm-hmm. and anyone who's a comic book person, this is a must read. Yeah, if you're into any sort of popular fiction, or you've ever been swept away by any sort of you know uh, amazing universe, right? Then this is for you, and that applies to so many people. It's hard to really pinpoint the exact people it isn't for. Hey guys, I really enjoyed reading this. Thanks for suggesting it to me. Sequoia suggests. Sequoia speaks. Well, this, this is more Dave's. Sequoia suggested. Sequoia spoke. Luckily, luckily, Sequoia and I read this in step with each other, so yes. I happen to know. His affinity is is a lot like mine for it. So that's that's the show, guys. That's the comic trope. You can find me at Canadian Blaken on the Twitter scopes, and you can find Smiling Dave at Count Paper, as in he is the Count of Lord Paper. I'm royalty of currency. And you can find Sequoia Winston at Capital Two. Uh, Is that what it's called still? Capital Comics. Capital Comics 2? Well, it's the only one. 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 Is there a two there still? I don't, I, you know, I never look at the sign. I'm pretty it's, sure there's a two. In my mind, it's just Capital Comics it's, or Raleigh. I think it's still in the yellow pages. It's Capital Comics 2. Yeah, possibly. Uh, this Friday, I'm just going to talk about this really quickly since it's, it's going to happen between now and the next podcast that we do. But this Friday, uh, the Nintendo Switch comes out. And so Thursday at midnight... Or at twelve thirty or so, whenever I get back home and can set the, the damn thing up, uh, you can find Count Paper on Nintendo Switch. Um, this Friday, I am going to take off the day so that I can get my snickdy snicked on and watch Logan. S n i k t snickdy snicked. There's no, there's no I. I don't think. There's an I. Is there? I thought it was S n k t. No, S n i k t. Snicked. It reads a lot better than it says. Anyways, from the comic trope to you, motherfuckers. Read a fucking comic. We're going back to uh, news and comments next week, guys. Next week.